Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. In today's episode, we're joined by DDS Dobson-Smith, a licensed therapist, author, executive coach, speaker on leadership and growth, and Reiki master, all in service of helping others to grow and become who they are. They recently released the new book this past February on Lioncrest Publishing titled, You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. We brought DDS on today to speak about building a holistic workplace experience and creating a culture of belonging in the workplace. DDS, welcome to the HR Works Podcast. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. That's great to have you on. So let's jump right into it, DDS. As I mentioned, you really have a, a varied background and do so many things. So can you start off by walking us through your career path and share what led you to pursuing such a varied career all centered around people and building a holistic workplace experience? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's good to start by going way, way, way back. When I was doing my undergrad, uh, which was in hospitality management, I grew I grew up in a pub in the UK. My parents had a pub. And so the hospitality service industry and being of service to others, I think is hardwired into me in some way. So it felt like a natural thing to do to go and do my bachelor's degree in hospitality management. And on my program was a mature student called Angela, and she was the head of a department at a catering college, a hospitality college. And she said to me one day, you'd make a great teacher. And I was like, okay, why not? Um, And and she gave me a job. Um, I mean, I I went and did a post-grad certificate in education and she gave me a job in her college. And there was one particular course I was teaching on public house operations. And I I was 25 at the time. So I was the youngest college professor in the UK at the time. Wow. And um, I remember handing back an assignment to a student who had owned their pub longer than I had been alive. And I had graded their paper with a C. And I I remember looking in his, his name was Howard. I remember looking in Howard's eyes and then inside like that, I think that was the first time as a 25 year old I'd ever experienced imposter syndrome. And I was like, I need to go and I need to go. <laughs> I need to I need to I need to go and get some experience under my belt and come back to academia in the end. And so I went out and, and started looking for a job and really wanted to do something that was as closely related to learning as possible and found a, a job in HR with um with a British retailer called Marks and Spencer. I was on their on a graduate development program. It was called personnel management in those days. That's how old I am. And so that started my career in HR. And I think after I spent, you know, maybe a decade at Marks and Spencer, and then I got what I was called, what I referred to as my first grown up job. I got recruited by a company called Eurostar, which takes passenger trains from London into continental Europe through the Channel Tunnel. And I was the head of um, organizational development there. And I, I remember having a moment, I don't know what caused it, but I remember having a moment of thinking, if I am going to lead this function in this organization, and I'm going to ask people to take their learning and development seriously, I need to be a role model for that. And that's and, and I went out and I started really just, I, I first trained as a, as a coach. 
And then I was working as a coach in, in business and realized that I was kind of, um, I don't know, me and my coaching clients were butting up against like an invisible brick wall. And I, and I wanted to be able to go deeper and to affect kind of like deeper change for them. So I went and got myself qualified as a psychotherapist. And then so over the years in, in HR, I've I kind of developed a career, had a side hustle as a psychotherapist running a private practice, developed a career in organizational development, organizational psychology, culture transformation, all with the theme of creating workplaces where people can be themselves. Because I think when we are allowed to be ourselves, when we are enabled to be ourselves, then everything and everyone in the world feels gorgeous. And there's more of us that's available for the, for the work. And, and really, that's, that's what the career has been. Um, the 25 years in HR, focusing on culture and climate, learning and development, org, org psych. And then, yeah, I guess this kind of side hustle. I've gone back into academia. I'm an adjunct adjunct professor teaching graduate students now to be therapists and I have my own psychotherapy practice. So I'm blending all of those worlds really into what has become the book and what has become my consultancy. That's so great. Yeah, you're so uniquely yourself. Something that's put together with years of experience and learning from different aspects of life. They're also interconnected too, right? The psychotherapy piece built in with people operations as so many call the role now too. Right. It's so true and it they all tie together. Right. Exactly. That's brilliant. Exactly. So DDS, so much of the conversation that we have in the HR space right now revolves around what we've been hearing over the last two years with the great resignation. But I've heard you actually refer to this period as the great realization. It really <laughs> caught my interest. So can you walk me through what that means and just explain that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the the last two and a half to three years, globally, we have experienced chronic trauma whether it has been what we've gone through with COVID or whether it has been through, I guess, the the social injustices that have taken center stage on everyone's social feed and everyone's news feed. I think we are going through a period of time that is paradigm shifting. I, I really do. But I think one of the things that, we, you know, when we're in a paradigm shift as a, as a culture, as a global culture, or, is, or indeed just, you know, an American culture, we, we, as in the human race, tend to ask ourselves some pretty deep existential questions. You know, who am I? Why am I? Um, and, you know, what am I doing? And, and is what I'm doing, spending my time doing, is it in alignment with who, who I think I am? And who I want to be. And for some people, they've answered that question, no, and and they've jumped ship and they've, you know, gone off to eat, pray, love in Bali or something, or they've opened an Etsy store or they've done something new and different and more aligned with their purpose. But some people have said, yeah, actually, what, what I am doing does rev my engine and it does light me up. So the next question that they've asked themselves is, is where I'm doing it bringing me meaning, purpose, and am I experiencing belonging? And many people have taken a, an honest look at that and said, actually, no, I'm not experiencing those things in this workplace. And they voted with their feet. They've quit. They've resigned. Hence the great resignation. Sure. But the reason why I call it the great realization is because I don't think there's a shortage of talent. I think we've just got a greater level of discernment amongst talent. And our workforce are asking, is asking themselves, 
and future potential employers very, very different questions. And they've realized that they can have more and that they do deserve more. That's why I call it the great realization. And the companies that can meet those needs, the organizations that are able to show people that they can have meaningful work that is aligned behind a mission and a purpose that is also meaningful and where they can show up and experience belonging in that workplace, those are the workplaces that are going to win in this so-called war of talent. I love that approach. Thank you for sharing that, DDS. I mean, it's so true that from the employee standpoint, there is that realization, that awakening to say, okay, what is important? What are my priorities? What do I want to do? What am I passionate about? Realizing also that you can be vocal about that and actually act on it and not just have that inkling in the back of your mind to say, maybe this isn't the right fit for me, but actually put that to the forefront and say, here's what matters and here's how I can actually have balance. Exactly. But even on the employer side, I think it's interesting. There's a great realization that you can meet your employees and actually do things differently, right? You don't need to be in an office five days a week. You can offer flexibility. You can be global. You can be unique in your own sense too and really buy into a brand and establish what you want your workforce to be. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. One thing we've seen too, I think over the last two years, is really a concerted effort and an ownership and an understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and really having that conversation that's come to the forefront so much more over the last few years. So with that, again, bringing up another quote that I've got from you, you mentioned diversity is a fact, inclusion is a behavior, belonging is an experience. I really like that and wanted to dig into more of that with you, DDS. Can you break these three components down and explain what each means for an organization and a workplace? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really important, first of all, is to recognize that they are different things. And so often today, we hear people talk about diversity, inclusion, and belonging almost as if it's one word. Right. Sometimes without commas. Right. (laughs) No commas, just exactly one long word. And so diversity is about representation. Diversity is about acknowledging and recognizing that there there are more people out there than the dominant social group would have us believe. And so you either do or do not have a diverse organization. When you look around, are there people that look like you? Yes. Are there people that don't look like you? Yes. Then if you answer yes to both of those questions, the chances are you have a diverse organization. And so diversity is just that. It is about representation. It is is binary. It is on or off. It, It either is or is not. And then once you've got diversity in an organization, in order to drive towards this experience of belonging, you have to have the behavior of inclusion. And I talk about organizational behavior and leadership behavior. So organizational behavior, when when an organization is behaving in an inclusive way, it will be because it has policies, practices, protocols that invite and include um, and ensure that the people who are these and I hate this term, but so-called diverse hires, that says everything problematic about our situation. They are just good hires, you know, they're hires. But, you know, to talk the language of, you know, of this, when you have hired diversity into an organization, if you don't have the behaviors of inclusion, then they are going to very, very quickly realize that the, the dream that they've been sold is not real, and they'll go exit and they'll go and find a place where they can experience it, the behavior inclusions. There's also leadership behavior. And I've long said, Josh, that the culture and climate of any organization will be shaped by the worst behavior you're willing to tolerate in a leader. 
that's because behavior is contagious. And so if your leaders are paying lip service to diversity and inclusion, then we see through that crap. Right. Like it's really easy to see when it's someone saying we should do this because I believe it's the right thing to do versus we should do this because everybody else is doing it. And if I don't do it, then I'm going to get called out on social media. Right. So that so there's the behavior. So you have the fact of diversity, you have the behaviors of inclusion, and that will lead to this experience of belonging. And I call it an experience because when we feel like we belong somewhere, not only is it a cognitive experience, not only is it is a is a, an emotional experience, but we feel it in our bodies. And for some people, belongings is a spiritual experience as well. Sure. Like we know when we've walked into a place where we don't feel like we belong. Like if I walk into a sports bar, I'm like, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I am, my body is on alert. And my body tells me that this is not a place that, where I feel comfortable. And, and our, bodies, our bodies are an early warning system. So that's why I call it an experience. It's the whole thing. Sure. So in order to get belonging, you have to have inclusion. In order to get inclusion, you have to have diversity. But you can have diversity without inclusion, which means you won't always get belonging. Interesting. Yeah, they're all interconnected. You're using that again, but it's so true. They need to go in order and they really are important to each other to make sense. And without that ultimate belonging piece, as you mentioned, you're never going to get that true person to show up. The person you hired initially to become more diverse and become inclusive, if they never truly belong and feel like they're a part of it, you're not getting that full diverse person. Right. And then there's a thread that goes all through that, which is equitable thinking, right? If you don't think, like I, I encourage organizations to, yes, think about fairness. Yes, think about equality. But what trumps all of that is equity. If we don't think equitably, i.e. equitable thinking encourages us to recognize that not everybody has the same chances in this life, because if you are born into a body that happens to be white, male, cisgender, straight, and non-disabled, there is an automatic leg up in life that you receive because of the dominant culture in our society. So equitable thinking recognizes that not everyone is equal and that we should be behaving in ways that recognizes that not everyone is equal because otherwise we invisibilize the experience that historically excluded communities genuinely have. And I really like what you mentioned too about it becomes very obvious when it's just lip service and that there needs to be an effort and a buy-in from the top into that to understand really that there is an impact and that this is good for the business, for the organization, for just the growth of the workplace and for your team. There's so much tied into doing it correctly. I really want to look at the belonging piece though too, because I think it really sticks out to say when you don't fully belong, it changes somebody right to their core in how they show up. So how does that impact workplace performance? Oh, I mean, on multiple levels, but the simplest way that I think I can conceive of this really is our need to belong is a biological imperative. It is in the same camp as our need to eat, sleep, procreate, and drink water, right? Like our need to belong transcends geographies, generations, uh, genders. It is it is a primal instinct. So primal it is that when we don't experience belonging, we will bend ourselves out of shape in order to fit in, in order to be deemed acceptable by the others who we want to fit in with. 
And when we're bending ourselves out of shape, we are covering, we are code switching, we are suppressing aspects of our behavior, our personality, our background, our experience in order to be deemed acceptable by the others. And that takes an, a, an incredible amount of psychological energy. Like talk about my own experience as a, as a gay person, asking myself, what kind of gay can I be in this situation? Like what flavor of me can I be? Like, can I be the, hey girl, hey, kind of gay? Or do I have to be business gay? And do I, you know, and asking those questions, and I'm not alone in that. Like what kind of black person can I be in this situation? What kind of woman can I be in this situation? Is it okay for me to show my nurturing side or am I gonna be accused of being too emotional? And so all the time we're asking ourselves these questions, what flavor of ourselves can we be in order to fit in? And when we're, when we're managing that in our inner world and we're consuming, using up this energy, this psychic energy, keeping parts of us hidden and out of view. Well, if we didn't have to do that, then all of that energy is available right. and it's available for work. It's available for innovation. It's available for creativity, for relationships, for productivity. And so we perform better. We are more productive. We are happier. Um, We are more at peace with who we are and with who others are. And so therefore we get to collaborate more deeply. We get to communicate more openly. We get to problem solve without ego. That in itself is, you know, I mean, we can go into the equations, the Sears value profit chain. We can talk about the the cost of attrition and all of that sort of stuff. But at a very basic human level, we can get it. We can get that when we don't have to spend, expend energy on trying to be someone that we're not, there's so much more of us available. Right. Absolutely. Think of the used bandwidth, right, to try to conform, as you mentioned, that you don't have to expend when you can just be fully belonging, but not have to contort, not have to figure out how to fit into the box. That's wasted bandwidth that could be used to be more productive and feel more full at the workplace, which ultimately is just pretty simple, is going to then give you a very positive result in the end. If you have positive people, you're going to ideally get a more positive experience, create a more positive culture, and hopefully get a more positive result. Exactly. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the HR Works podcast is brought to you by Namely. We all do our best to keep ahead of business trends, but keeping ahead can be its own full-time job. With everyone wearing multiple hats, it's easy to fall behind, and that's why you need to make the switch to Namely, the all-in-one HR solution that adapts with your business. Namely helps you and your team with all aspects of HR, whether you have 50 or 1,000 employees, from onboarding and performance management to payroll and intuitive benefits enrollment. Namely does it all in one connected and modern platform. Plus, Namely is customizable for your company, culture, and goals, so they can match where you are now and adapt as you grow in the future. So grow with Namely and learn more about making the switch today by going to my special URL at namely.com slash hrworks. And for a limited time, get one free month when you make the switch to Namely. So don't wait. That's namely.com slash hrworks. And now back to our episode. All right. So what are some of the policies, practices, and behaviors that can really help build a culture of belonging in a workplace? Yeah. Well, I mean, the policies and practices that can build a culture of belonging, I mean, first of all, we need to start with how do we get representation and diversity into the organization? And that really starts with your talent acquisition processes. And 
how are you setting up your talent acquisition processes to ensure that your job ads are not just seen by the same people all of the time right. because you will attract the same candidate pool. Then when you have a diverse candidate pool, how are you shortlisting those and ensuring that bias is is hardwired out of the talent acquisition kind of shortlisting processes, whether that is you know, taking names off of application forms because we know that certain names are favored over other other types of names or whether there is a strict recruitment policy that says you can only recruit from an Ivy League school, which, of course, is going to bias towards straight white men. Um, and um, and so so there's all of the and the book, the book has got has laid out some really practical steps in there. But then when you've got a diverse organization, there's some really important stuff that becomes important in your people policies around inclusion. So first of all, when I think about family-friendly policies, so are we talking about, are, are we equalizing family leave for parents um, and of all genders right? rather than just quote-unquote the mother? Because trans men get to have children, right? The definition of a family is so broad. The definition of the family has changed. And, you know, there's even something that, that this really, really annoys me. <laughs> the fact that in America, we refer to pregnancy as a disability. Like that tells you everything about how our systems are are set up. Right. And what that, that brings a certain set of messages, right? And then you know, does an organization make space for people to use their preferred name over their legal name on their email address? Does an organization have a policy around if a trans person wants to start their social or medical transition at work, how does a company support that to, to make it happen? Are there all gender bathrooms available for people? Are there more social events than just going out to the bar and having a drink? So inclusive, uh, inclusive social events. Are we celebrating the holidays in a way that feels inclusive? You know, because for indigenous people, Columbus Day has a certain ring to it that isn't celebratory. Or even Thanksgiving, if we celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah, are we celebrating Ramadan? Sure. You know, so there's all of these things that, that when we have an increasingly diverse workforce, they need to feel like they are being included in the organizational architecture. And there's, you know, I've probably done a very bad job of categorizing them in this in this conversation, but they're, they're all in the book if people want to read about it. Don't sell yourself short. I think you really did do a great job of just breaking that down to understand that you need to build that infrastructure that really allows an openness for great talent to come in, mm -hmm. not who that specific person is. I, I really like what you mentioned, too. The recruiting process really starts it. Those organizations that are aiming to be inclusive and really trying to create more of a culture of belonging, but maybe don't feel or don't know if they're getting there, what are some KPIs that organizations can use? We use KPIs at so many levels, right? Just to measure how we're performing. Yeah. What are our KPIs that we can use for belonging to measure how we're doing? Well, you know, there's, you'll know this as a, as a fellow HR professional, there is a whole industry out there of employee engagement, employee opinion, and there's AI bots, and there's surveys, and there's the whole kit and caboodle and everything and the kitchen sink that is thrown at this here's how to measure what's going on with, with your workforce which is cool right and 
when I was a chief learning and culture officer in an organization, did I use those systems? Of course I use those systems because, you know, that's what we do. And, and actually, it's really, really simple. You can distill it down to really two important things to pay attention to that are correlated, and that's your employee attrition and your employee satisfaction. And so when one of those KPIs goes up, the other one goes down. And clearly, what we're looking for is employee satisfaction going up and employee attrition going down to what is a, an acceptable level for your organization. And if you track those two, you will know whether people feel like they belong or not. Because when we feel like we belong, we're happier. We feel more psychological safety at work and we'll, we'll want to stay. And that's really been such a big driver with the great resignation, great reshuffle, great realization, right? Has been that attrition clearly was high. And as soon as March 2020 hit and everyone went home and worlds were kind of turned into a tailspin, you start to realize that and put some more focus on, yeah, attrition is high and satisfaction maybe was a little low. And we're starting to at least see employees try to swing that back the other way. And now employers are needing to react as well and figure out, okay, how do we bring that satisfaction level up? Yeah. Bring attrition down. So it's great to simplify that too. As somebody who I have a marketing background myself and keep it simple, stupid was always the approach and it works in all factors. Yes. Yeah. That's perfect. So with that being said, what are some of the more overlooked or forgotten factors impacting inclusion in the workplace and belonging in the workplace that HR professionals, HR leaders should be looking for? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one that sticks out for me as a, as a sore thumb, and that is the idea of naming places as safe spaces. And I noticed that mostly when somebody is claiming a space to be safe, they're doing so from a place of privilege Interesting. and they're doing so like, so I don't know, let's say there is a, a trainer at the front of the room or a presenter at the front of the room. They themselves have a position of power because they're the trainer or, or they, they are the, the facilitator or the presenter. But then there's also, you know, oftentimes we'll see, you can, you know, we'll, we'll hear a manager say, you can speak openly. This is a safe space. Now, as a queer person, if a straight person says to me, this is a safe space, DDS, it's okay. I'd be like, you have no idea about my lived experience as a queer person in this world. And you don't get to claim this, this space as safe. What we can do, though, is ensure psychological safety. And if we, if we take action to ensure psychological safety which is the experience we have when it's not expensive to be ourselves. And we create a space where we experience that inclusion and we feel psychologically safe. We set the scene for what I prefer to call as intentionally brave spaces. Spaces where we can recognize that we don't feel comfortable and still have the conversations that we need to have. So I would be asking my peer group out there, the listeners, the HR professionals, if you're using the terminology, this is a safe space, please stop. Because, because it, it, we, you can never, ever assume the lived experience of somebody else. But what you can do instead is create intentionally brave spaces where, that people can lean into. And it's from intentionally brave spaces that we grow we don't grow from safe spaces. That's some really great insight. And again, I'm sure a lot of times that creating the safe space mantra comes from a good place, 
of course. But it invokes something deeper that often is overlooked. It's almost similar to when you tell someone, hey, you need to calm down. That's the last thing you want to hear. No, no one in the history of calming down was ever calmed down by being told to calm down. Correct. Right. <laughs> Look at it the same way, 100%. So for those organizations that do recognize, hey, there's a problem, or we need to address how we're looking at diversity, how we're creating a culture of belonging in the workplace, where can they start? Well, there's a fabulous book that was published in February called You Can Be Yourself Here. I've <laughs> so, heard of that book. So, and let's but, dig into it. If, if you've but, got some great pointers that you'd like to share with our audience, now's well, a great time, DDS. I mean, but b- before even getting into that book or any book or any resource, I would say that what an organization, and when I say an organization, I really mean the leaders of an organization need to be prepared to do is to be wrong. Because when we are in these conversations, it is likely that when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is likely that we're going to be wrong at some point. And we are also afraid of having these conversations because they're messy and they often bring about emotions like shame or guilt or anger. And Therefore, we we don't want to feel those things. We don't want to be wrong and we don't want to feel shame. We don't want to feel guilt and we don't want to be angry. So we back away from them and we end up not having the real conversations that need to be had that are messy and complicated and will inherently make us feel wrong at some point. Because in order to learn, in order to learn, it means you've got to shed some of our old beliefs and perceptions and ways of thinking and adopt new ones. And so even before you get into reading the book or any book or engaging with a consultant around DEI or or hiring a head of DEI or whatever it is you're going to do as an organization, first start with your inner game right. and your inner game and be very clear with yourself that it's going to you're going to probably be wrong. You're going to probably experience some emotions that you don't want to experience and you've got to do it anyway. Yeah, that's a great place to start. It's starting with an understanding that, hey, we're not going to be perfect. We may slip here and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to tread on people's toes. You're going to say the wrong thing. It, you, <laughs> and that's and when you do, you take accountability for your impact. You apologize for your impact and then you move on. You learn and you move on. Is maybe the big hurdle there, people's fear of confrontation or just the avoidance of sometimes those difficult conversations? Does that inherently create that barrier to being wrong and and taking the chance to be brave and step into that? You know, I remember with the Me Too movement, when many men started to feel afraid of being alone in a room with a female colleague, uh, where many men were scared about saying the wrong thing. And so I don't want to belittle those emotions because they're real. And I want to say to us all, hurt doesn't always equal harm. Your feelings can be hurt, but humans are resilient. And if you're prepared to engage in a repair, if you're prepared to engage in a conversation and you're prepared to engage in in forward movement, then it will be okay. That's some great insight, DDS. Now let's talk about the book a little more. Okay. I want to give you this great opportunity to speak to our audience, really share some great experiences there. So you launched your book in February. Yes. Again, the title being? 
You can be yourself here, your pocket guide to creating inclusive workplaces by using the psychology of belonging. So tell me with that book release, what's been the favorite thing that you've seen since releasing in February? And also maybe the most unexpected thing that you've seen happen. The most unexpected thing was my own feelings about the book. So um, I, I, I shared with friends and my husband, it feels like I'm the chef at a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner, because by the time you sit down for dinner, you know, you've sampled the stuffing, you've eaten a bit of turkey, you maybe drank a couple of glasses of wine. And by the time you sit down for dinner, you're kind of over the meal, but everyone else is like, yay, let's eat. And so that was a real surprising thing for me. The day that it launched, everyone was like, DDS, you did it. I'm like, yeah, okay, what's the next thing? Let's move on kind of thing. So that was very surprising to me. I think the most touching thing has been strangers who have got in touch with me to tell me that they felt seen by the book. Oh, that's great. And I can, I can feel myself choking up as I think about some of the conversations that I've had with people about, you know, because the book was written for HR professionals, for CEOs, founders of organizations, but people who are not, who don't have those roles have reached out to me and, and shared how important that some of the messages in the book were to them. And that, that to me has been the greatest gift. That's awesome. It, it's real. It's honest. And you're right. Anyone who can get their hands on the book now has access to your to your insight and just the great advice you can offer there. So that's fantastic. And right, you can impact people that you didn't even think you might be able to touch or reach out to when you were writing it. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that, DDS. So again, we're here with DDS Dobson Smith joining us here on the HR Works podcast and sharing so much about creating belonging and just the wholeness in the workplace. So DDS. Tell me about yourself now. We've seen so much over the last two years and talked so much about just the change that we've especially experienced over the last two years. How about with yourself? What's changed and what have you learned over the last two years that's made you a better leader, um, more holistic person? Wow. I think I've really learned to pay attention to myself and pay attention to some people will call it intuition. Some people will call it gut. Some people will call it their intellect. Whatever it is, I've really learned to pay attention to myself and to listen the first time. Nice. I like that. You can feel it. It's a guttural feeling, as you mentioned, where you know when something just isn't right for you or there's something wrong here. That's such a great one to share. Thank you, DDS. You're welcome. And as the last question here to wrap up, I love sharing advice and paying it forward with our listeners. So what's something that you received, a good piece of business, leadership, or life advice that you've always leaned on, that you'd like to pay it forward and, and share with our audience of HR professionals? Um, it is not your job to fix. Okay, I like that one. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me is, I think, I think I may have been motivated in my early days by my own abusive childhood, my own experiences of growing up and being bullied and 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 outcast. And instead of focusing on addressing my own issues, I projected those onto other people. And I think I probably got into teaching or into HR or into psychotherapy because I believed that it was my job to fix other people. And so 
once I realized that people don't need fixing and that helping other people isn't always about answering their questions, addressing their issues, that actually the best kind of help that you can give someone is to just listen to them and validate them and their experience and believe them. And once I realized that my job was to become the best version of me, the most congruent version of me, I then no longer needed to, I I was then no longer driven by a desire to fix other people and fix other things because I just, people aren't broken. Being human isn't a fallen condition. And I think the other thing that I would say is if you're going to get into HR or if you are in HR, just make sure you like people. I've seen so many HR professionals. I've seen so many HR people in our profession who have a who have a level of contempt for people i'm like what did you choose this profession for this might not be the right career yeah. path. <laughs> that's fantastic well look dds dobson smith thank you so much for giving us such a real honest conversation and just some awesome advice too that so many of us can take into the workplace make ourselves just better as professionals, better as people. So again, thank you for the time here, DDS. Before we wrap, do you have anything you want to plug? Even your book, where can our listeners who want to read and learn more and really engage with with this new book, where can they find it? Where can they buy it? Where can they learn more? Thanks for asking. Well, it's available ebook, paperback, and audible uh, via Amazon. You can find out more about me at at www.soultrain.com. There's a page on my website called shift happens where there's a blog a vlog and some videos and articles and stuff and also in september october my second book should be out and that's called leadership is a behavior not a title your pocket guide to being a leader worth following that's so great you weren't kidding right once you wrapped up the first book you were right on to the next next thing (laughs) yeah Wasted no time. Well, look, DDS, thank you so much for being a guest on the HR Works podcast. We really hope to have you back soon. And again, this is a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the HR Works podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible.